You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, it's me again. Hello. Um, let's pray together and let's, let's consider this passage. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would now shine your light over your people, that we with our spiritual eyes might see reality. Lord, we can hear things about you and um, meditate on you a little bit, but without the illumination of your spirit, we can never know you. We can never take these truths that we're about to discuss uh, and experience them in a transformative light we might truly see. Advent, in so many ways, is about light coming into the world, light so that we might see what is, Lord. Our physical eyes can only go so far. We need spiritual eyes to see who you are what you're calling us to, and the identity you place on us as your children. So would you give us this light, we pray this morning, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I think I've shared this experience before a number of years ago in the church, but it was helpful for this passage. I just remember as a kid having excellent eyesight. I, that was like a thing that I even was proud of, boasted in in my family. Uh, others had big old magnifying glass-sized glasses, and I could see really well. Uh, but later in my 20s, when I was married, uh, my, my wife was just observing, like at church sometimes, I'd be like squinting at the screen try, trying to see the words, or maybe at different road signs, uh, ha- having a hard time seeing them. And she just, you know, gently suggested, hey, just, just check that out. Just maybe go see the eye doctor and see, see what they have to say. And I took offense. Like, how dare you? I, first of all, I had the best eyes in my family. Um, but through some continued struggles there, I went uh, and ended up going to the eye doctor. And we, we went through everything. And they just asked me casually, so, so do you drive? And, oh, yeah, I dr- drive, drove here today. Maybe don't do that for the time being. Um, hold, hold off on that. Uh, and so I drove home anyway, and we were, we were fine. We made it through everything. And uh, I remember going back to the, to the eye doctor and uh, putting on the glasses for the first time. By the way, I'm wearing contacts today. That's why uh, I don't have my glasses on. But uh, putting on my glasses for the first time, and I wanted to sing It's a Whole New World by Aladdin, from Aladdin. You remember that, that song? Uh, a new fantastic point of view. Um, there was a whole world that I had lost sight of, this whole like colors and definition and, and just reality that I was unable to see previously because of how my eyes, I guess because of genetics, had begun to deteriorate. Uh, and, and in that experience, obviously, it's not like anything changed in the outside world. It's not like, uh, uh, you know, s- some big shift happened. What happened is that, I, that through wearing these glasses, I now was able to see in a way 
that I couldn't see previously. Uh, I, I was able to, and when we think about Advent, this series about the, the coming of Christ into the world, in, in so many ways, a focus of Advent is light, light. So uh, it's right here in this passage. It describes true light that was coming into the world. And maybe there's different angles through which we think about light during Advent. So, uh, you know, there's the, you know, Christmas lights on houses that maybe remind us of like the brilliance and the beauty of God coming into the world. Or there's the Advent candles that maybe we light. We, we normally do that. We, we drop the ball this year. We don't have the Advent candles, but we normally have the Advent candles, which perhaps in the midst of a dark world uh, symbolize hope, or, uh, you know, just, just that we can have hope in the midst of, uh, of living in a dark world. But how I want us to think about light coming into the world this morning is through this uh, illustration of like a extremely powerful spotlight that shines on things that you would not be able to see otherwise. Uh, Advent is about light coming into the world that allows us to see reality, allows us to see what's true, allows us to see ourselves, allows us to see God in a way we would never be able to see if it weren't for the light of Christ revealing that to us. In so many ways, brothers and sisters, Advent is about giving us light in order to see, to see God, to see ourselves in ways that we never could on our own. And so under that theme of light, I want to just look at two areas, I think, from this passage relevant for us this morning. I want to first shine some light on our calling uh, and, and consider what has God called us to as his people together as, as a church. And then number two, I want to consider uh, shining some light on our identity. This passage says a lot about who we are uh, through Christ. I want to consider our identity a bit. And so beginning with shining light on our calling, let's look at that first and uh, let's do it by just remembering where we were last week, okay? So verses one through five in John one are taking us way back before human history, showing us what God was doing before he created anything. And then as we shift into verse 6 this morning, uh, across uh, Israel's history, uh, across a, a few hundred years of God really uh, being quite silent uh, during the periods in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we jump way back from before the creation of the world all the way to the opening of the New Testament with a man named John. John the Baptist steps on the scene and I just want to emphasize that as John begins to step on the scene, uh, that prior to him, there had been really no new revelation from God for a long time. There had been no prophets. There had been no real significant leader that arose among God's people. Uh, it, it had been a very quiet, dark, long period of time. And then uh, the world in which he uh, begins to uh, engage with is a dark and miserable place. When John the Baptist is carrying out his work, there are people who are hurting deeply. We see that through the gospel accounts, the varying illnesses and ailments that people are plagued with. We see Rome oppressing the people of Israel. We see the evil one dominating the people of Israel. Uh, and, And it doesn't seem like God is doing anything about it. For all these centuries, and then it literally says that the translation here in verse 6 says that there arose, there there rose up out of all of the darkness and the silence and the pain and the question marks of if God even cares about us at all, it says there arose a man 
sent from God. His name was John, and he came to bear witness to the light. So John the Baptist clearly knew he was not the light. It says that right there. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. He was not the solution. He was not the answer, but he was someone who understood himself to be a signpost, uh, a the world. Now, I want to note, first of all, with John, before we identify our calling with his, like some similarities that we have, I want to recognize that he's, of course, a unique individual in the story of the Bible. So John the Baptist was spoken about in the book of Isaiah, uh, that a voice would be declaring in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, And so he has this unique role that none of us share. You know, none of us are out in the Judean wilderness eating locusts, wearing camel's clothes uh, as a a fashion statement. Uh, John is unique in that way. But what I simply want to point out are some similarities in the calling that John the Baptist had and the calling that you and I have as God's people. And that calling is this. We are called similarly to rise up in a dark world and to bear witness to Jesus. It says there that it was silent. God didn't seem to be doing anything. But then someone rose up in the midst of that and they bore witness to Jesus. This is the calling that we also carry as 21st century believers today. And we see the idea of people bearing witness all over John's gospel. For example, the woman at the well has this encounter with Jesus. She immediately goes back to her town and is telling everyone what's happened. Uh, The women who see Jesus's resurrection are, are the first noted as those who are called to go and bear witness to the other disciples that Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's alive. Their role of a witness is something we see all throughout John's gospel and it's felt all throughout the the church, throughout all of history. The question we have to grapple with this morning is this. In our own time, in our own place, in our own lives, do we see ourselves as having the same calling as John had 2,000 years ago? Do we see ourselves as people who have been sent by God in order to bear witness to Jesus? Do you see yourself, just like it says, sent by God? So for example, another passage, John 20, 21 says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Placed in Manassas, Virginia, or in the broader Prince William County area? Or do you see yourself as someone who is not merely existing in this place, but has been sent by God with a purpose? Do you see yourself as someone who's been sent here to, to, with a purpose, and that purpose, of course, being to bear witness to Jesus? Acts 1.8 says, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Do we see ourselves in our lives today as merely just existing, or do we see ourselves as people who have been sent by God in order to bear witness to the reality of Jesus? Let me just sort of describe our calling this, this way this morning. I was thinking about our county that we live in. So most of us are, you know, Manassas City, Prince William County in general, maybe you're a little bit outside of there. And I was thinking about the makeup of, of just our little county. And there's dozens of counties in Virginia, but just our little county. There's uh, half a million people here at least, perhaps a little bit more now. 
And I was trying to think of like this call that we have as God's people to bear witness to Jesus in a county of half a million people. If all the other followers of Jesus lived anything like I lived this past week, if all the other followers of Jesus in Prince William County lived any, any, any way like you lived this week, how many times was the good news of Jesus explained to someone? Just this past week. Like if we agree that we live in, amidst half like a, uh, uh, an example of, of what others are doing in the area that we live in, amidst half a million people in this county, just how many times do you think the light of Jesus was borne witness to by someone? A hundred times, maybe? Fifty times? I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't have the answer, but I know if it looks anything like often what my own life looks like, not very many, which... Uh, brings us to this question. If people from our church do not rise up to bear witness to the reality of who Jesus is in the place where God has called us, who is going to do it? If not you, asking the question, hey, how can I uh, bear witness to the reality of what Jesus has done? At least uh, not many. And so this morning, I want us to just be freshly reminded of the calling that God has put on us to, to, to shine light that we are here as sent people to bear witness of the saving news of what Jesus has done. And I want us to simultaneously feel the weight of that a little bit this morning, but I also want to lighten that a little bit because I know every time we talk about this call to share Jesus with people outside the faith, it's always a guilt trip, no matter what. It's almost just like, how many times did you pray last week? Like, it's always a, not as much as I should, I know that. Uh, and, And we walk out of here maybe feeling like, all right, maybe I should do something about that. Maybe there's something I can change. But if it's out of this sense of guilt, nothing really usually changes out of that. But I wonder with this call to bear witness to Jesus, the theme of like seeing from a new perspective or having uh, a, a new angle through which we see this call might help us, okay? So sometimes we hear we're called to uh, proclaim the gospel in the areas in which we live. And so we think, all right, what do I need to do? Should I like schedule a time on my calendar to go to a place and just start evangelizing? Should I uh, have some moment where I go into Old Town and I'm just like awkwardly trying to strike up conversations with people? Well, some of you may actually be very gifted in this way. So there's this should find time to do that. But for most of us, uh, I want us to think about it in this way. So there's this encounter Jesus has with the woman at the well. Her life is transformed by him, so much so that she goes back and she's about to just share the news of Jesus with everyone she can in her hometown. The disciples come back from this incredible moment when uh, that just the gospel is beginning to spread, the news of Jesus is beginning to spread among Samaria. They come back and they are thinking about the same thing you and I are thinking about right now, the potluck after church, right? Uh, uh, they are thinking about, like, uh, about getting something to eat. And Jesus' second thing is happening right before their eyes, and they're talking about lunch. Like, uh, but what does Jesus say to them in that moment to help them get a grip on what they should be focused on? Uh, he doesn't say to them, hey, you guys really need to be sharing the gospel more. Hey, you guys really need to get on track with what we're doing here. No, what he says to them in that moment of being distracted from their calling is, open your eyes, Open your eyes. The harvest is ready. The fields are white for harvest. They're right in front of you. In other words, the the thing that we need to hear sometimes with our call to share the gospel is not necessarily do a bunch of things differently, but view the things you're already doing differently. View your interactions. View your workplace lunch. View your time at the park with a new lens. Open your eyes to what's already right in front of you. 
The problem for us is that we're often so distracted or maybe self-centered or so busy that we don't even have eyes to see what's happening right before our eyes. Just little moments. I love how Bill shared even the way that he ended up coming into New City in the first place. Just an ordinary interaction at a coffee shop that ended up into an invitation to church to then him, him being here. It's those simple moments where we just view them with a new set of eyes, eyes that are asking God, God, is there something you might want to do while I'm here at Ground Central Station? Is there something you might want to do when I'm at the gym, when I'm having lunch at work? Is there someone you might want me to invite in? Is there someone you might want me to notice who's at the park when I take my kids there? God, give me eyes to see what you might be doing in our midst. That's, I think, the first thing that we need to shine light on this morning is to be reminded and freshly called into our calling like John the Baptist, to rise up in the midst of a dark world and to bear witness to Jesus. Uh, the, the, the second thing that I wanna focus our attention on this morning is uh, considering our identity, shining some light on how this passage explains our identity as believers in Christ. So let me just begin summarizing our, our identity this way. Tim Keller has a wonderful way of describing sort of the tension of our identity as human beings through the gospel in this way. You've maybe be heard it before. He says, we are more than we ever dared believe. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared, hoped. You and I, when we see the reality, when light is, is given to us to see the reality of who we are in the gospel, we are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than we ever would have dared to believe on our own. And yet at the same time through Christ, we are more loved and accepted in him than we ever dared hope. And those two realities, I think, show up in this passage pretty clearly. What this passage really does is shows us the depths uh, of what our sin looks like, but then it also raises us out of there and shows us the heights of our redemption that we have in Christ. So I wanna look, first of all, at sort of the, the dark side of our identity. Uh, here, back in verse 10, it says, concerning Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the first way we're described apart from Christ is just a general darkness concerning God. Remember last week we talked about Jesus as the one who was responsible for bringing all things into existence. We didn't even see him. We have this general darkness where we don't even, when he came into the world, we didn't even see him or recognize him for who he was. I had this incredibly awkward experience at the barber shop about two months ago. I was in there, and uh, the, the barber that I usually see, he was running a little bit behind, and so uh, I wanted to get a smoothie. There was a smoothie place nearby, and so I just said, hey, I'm gonna be right back, don't worry. I'm gonna head over to Smoothie King and get something uh, to drink while we wait uh, for, for you to be open. Uh, and then he just says back to me, like, no, man, don't go to Smoothie King, go to Tropical Smoothie, to which I just boldly and arrogantly responded, man, Tropical Smoothie's trash. I'm going to Smoothie King. Now, I don't actually think that, like, it's it, compared to. I think Smoothie King is in their haircut at the exact moment the daggum owner of Tropical Smoothie Cafe was getting his haircut right as I make this declaration. And then I went there and he was still getting his haircut and I couldn't turn back at that point. I'd already committed to Smoothie King, so I got it. And so I just sat there right next to the owner of this place uh, <laughs> while, while we both got our haircut with complete shame. But, but when, 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 when Jesus came into the world, what John is saying is like, we are so ignorant 
and darkened in our understanding to the reality of who God is that we don't even recognize the owner of everything. Like when Jesus was here, it says here that he came into the world and his own people didn't even recognize it. They didn't even know. And it's not that we're completely ignorant to the reality of God. We know that there's a creator. We know there's a such thing as right and wrong and that that can't just stem from uh, you know, a material universe. Like intuitively, we know those things, but, but the reality of who God is, it's, it's darkened to us. We can't see him. We don't understand him. That's the first general darkness that's described in this passage. But then there's actually a, more, a, a deeper, more perverse darkness that's described in the next verse. So first of all, it says that, that you know, he came into the world and uh, the, the, the own world didn't recognize him. And in verse 11, it says, he came to his own people, the people of Israel, and even his own people did not receive him. This is saying something deeper than what we just said about general ignorance, not only are, are we dark as to who God is and his character and who, and who he is, uh, but the people who he had revealed himself to most closely through hundreds of years, thousands of years of interacting with them, being in a covenant relationship with him, the people who he had revealed himself to uh, through his word, through his law, the people who he had revealed himself to most brightly and clearly through the coming of Jesus into the world, just ignore him, when God showed his people what he was really like through Jesus, they crucified him. They crucified him. So not only is there this general ignorance that we have to the nature of God, when we begin to see what God is really like, the, the human heart in the, in the depths of who we are cries out, crucify him. You see, many of us have an idea of who God is that, that maybe we've held for, for a very long time and the idea that we have of who God is, we, we love him. But naturally speaking, when the true God, the God of the Bible, the God who created everything, reveals himself to humanity, humanity's not, response is not welcome him in, submit to him, worship him. Humanity's natural response is get him out of my way. I want nothing to do with him. Crucify him. So this is the depth of our condition apart from Christ. We can't see God. We don't fully understand him. The Bible describes us as in the dark to him. But even as he reveals himself to us, it says that we would not receive him. We would reject him naturally. That's the depths of our sin. What I want us to see, though, is how it then shifts and uh, calls our attention to the heights of God's love, the heights of God's love. So we're, it, it begins by saying, um, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, they did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people, his very own people did not receive him. But verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. To all who receive Jesus, he gives the right, the authority, the ability to be called children of God. This is uh, an area of our redemption called adoption. And I love how J.I. Packer described the adoption we experience in Christ. He says, adoption is perhaps the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. 
This is before us this morning, the, the, perhaps the height, the, 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 the most astounding part of the redemption that Jesus offers us. Jesus comes to people who reject him, people who cry out, crucify them. He says, to those very people, I will give the right, should they receive me, to be called children of God. And let me just try to illustrate, though, the, what, what J.I. Packer here is saying concerning some different aspects of our redemption, different aspects of the gospel uh, this way. So um, Jesus comes to us as, as people who are flawed and sinful and hopeless. He says, I'm going to offer redemption to you. I'm going to change everything. And to illustrate it, it's, it's like he would say, there, there's three rooms I want you to visit to understand the redemption that I'm going to make available for you. The first room that I'm going to take you into is the Holy of Holies. I'm going to take you into the, to a temple. That's where your redemption is going to begin. Uh, Romans says the wages of sin is death. For us to have a forgiven, right relationship with God, a death has to take place. But we know the death of an animal could never take away our sins. So Jesus says, you, you have sinned against God, but I will be the sacrifice. I will give my life for you to cover your sins so that you can be made holy in the temple. So he begins our redemption there in a temple and then we, we move to another room. This time it doesn't look so much like a temple. This time it looks like a courtroom. And in uh, the courtroom you come in and there's this tall binder. It's huge. It's taller than you and there's a judge, God the judge on the throne standing before you and in that binder is every sin you've ever committed. But when you open that binder, what you see is it's just blank pages. Every one of them has been blotted out. And so in the courtroom, because Jesus gave his life for you, you are now declared right. God the judge looks over you and says, uh, in the temple you were made holy. In the courtroom you were declared right. That's called justification. When God declares that we have a right relationship with him on the basis of Jesus. But there's, uh, as you leave there, you're amazed. You're amazed that God would do so much through Jesus to redeem you and save you but there's one more room to visit. Began in a temple, you go into a courtroom, one more room to visit. You go in and it's another courtroom and you're confused. I, well, I thought we already went through this. I thought I'd already been declared righteous. Is there some other issue that needs to be sorted out through the court? And you know, it would be responded to you. Brother or sister, this isn't, this isn't legal court. This is adoption court. This is adoption court where God is giving you the right to be called a child of God. That, that's what this passage is saying. The, the full authority, the full right to be considered a child of God has been given to you through what Jesus has done on your behalf. To all who did receive them, he gave the right to be called children of God, to which we could say, how can this be? How can someone as flawed and as sinful as me be given such privileges, such honors as these? Was I somehow born into the right family maybe? Was there an inside connection? Did uh, this somehow come about by being connected to the right people? No, the, the next verse says that those who are born as children of God are done so not by blood, in other words, not by your ethnicity, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but God. Why do we get to be called children of God? Because God the Father made you holy in his temple, made you just in his courtroom, and made you his child. Why did he do that? Because he loves you and he chose you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Because he loves you and he wanted you, and through Christ he adopted you as his very own. And now all who put their faith in Jesus can consider themselves children of God. So 
just in closing then, as we get ready to wrap this up, how should we respond to this news? Or more specifically, why do you need to know that you, have, you can call God Father? Well, number one, you need to know this so that you can leave from this place and worship God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he would call you as his very own. But another reason that you need to take this reality to heart, that you've been adopted and you've been placed in God's family, is because it will help prepare you to be stable through whatever storms life throws your way. I was with some church planners earlier this week. We were in Philadelphia, and it's like a cohort to get together and just kind of share and be encouraged and things like that. And there was a guy there that was a little bit older than the rest of us. He had planted a church a little later in life. He had grown kids, and he was just describing his experience that was unique from ours. So he moved from Florida. He had two daughters who were in high school. He planted a church in the Williamsburg area, and it was a lot of change, transition, and things like that through high school. Did anybody go through a bunch of change and transition in high school? Like, that's like the last time that you want to go through change and transition. And that's even what people will say, like, hey, if you're going to move, don't do it when your kids are in high school, because that can be very uprooting, that can really throw things around in, in their lives. And, uh, you know, he actually described that his daughters are doing quite well, they're on their way to, to college. And he, he said something, I think, that, that it was very insightful and relevant for us in our own lives. You know, he, he said this, he said, uh, you know, many people would say, don't transition high schoolers around, you know, but if you have a strong home life, man, your kids can handle just about anything. If, if you have a stable, adoring, that issue, you can handle just about anything. It doesn't mean everything in life is going to be easy, but when that issue is secure, when you find your identity as an adopted child of God, and that is, that is, the, that is your source of identity, that defines who you are, you can handle just about everything. The storms or the failures that we face in life seek to unravel our identity, right? So uh, maybe you go through a relationship unraveling and that says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm unlovable. Maybe you go through a, a job that's struggling or lost or well, I must be a failure. Maybe uh, uh, you had a bad semester or betrays you, you begin to define yourself perhaps as someone rejected. But when you have a secure home life, a secure position with the God of the universe, all of those experiences might be painful, but they don't define who you are. They don't speak the, the, most, uh, the loudest word over your life. You, when your identity is secure, when your identity is settled, all of those things can be hard, but not life-defining moments. So some have put it like this. In the gospel, we get an identity that we receive not an identity that we achieve. The world is out there working so hard to achieve an identity, to make ourselves somebody, to, 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 to let our identity be something that is uh, stable and firm. The child of God simply settles into their identity by faith. John said it right here. To all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So for some of you, life may be unraveling a little bit right now. In Christ, that doesn't mean you are unraveling. Because your identity is a settled matter, uh, and that is what defines you. You can weather whatever circumstances you're going through. And so as we get ready to come to the table this morning, we're going to take these elements, the bread and the cup, that, that 
are weekly reminders of who you are. Through the body, which the bread symbolizes of Christ, through the blood, which symbolizes his blood poured out to cover your sins, you have been forgiven, you have been justified, you've gone through adoption court, and you have now been given the right to be called a child of God. Be reminded that that is who you are. And by faith, it can never be taken away. No matter what's happening around you, that is a secure, firm identity. If you believe those truths, come forward and take communion. Uh, You're in a place where you could honestly say, like it says here, you have not received Jesus. Let me simply invite you to do just that. We believe that communion is a sacred meal for those who have believed all of the truths that we've discussed this morning. But if that's not you, we don't believe that you're in a position to take communion yet but you have the opportunity right now. This is how simple he makes it. It's, it says, uh, but to all who did not fix some things in their life and then came to God, to all who you know, uh, fixed up some areas, no, it just says to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. The way we receive what Jesus has done for us is by acknowledging, Lord, I believe it. I trust that you came to forgive me of my sins, I trust that through my faith in you, I can be given this firm, um, unchanging identity of a child of God. So let me pray for us this morning. Maybe some in this room are ready to receive just that. Maybe others just need to be reminded of it. Let's pray, and then when you're ready, you can come forward and take these elements that declare the identity that's, that have been, that's been given to you. Let's, let's pray now. Lord, I thank you that uh, you want to shine light on our perspective this morning. You want us to see the reality of our calling. You want us to see the reality of our, de- our identity. You have made us your own through our identification with Jesus. So Lord, would we now respond with lives of worship? Would we live confidently in that identity? No matter what our natural home looks like, no matter what our circumstances in life look like, could we rest in the settled identity that we are beloved children of God? Man, these elements at this table tell us that we are not sinners, we are not lost, we are not outside your love. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been brought near to the highest possible place. We now have an adoring Father who has a love for us that will never be shaken. Our Father is sovereign, working all the circumstances in our life for our good. Through that adoring love, you remove all guilt, all shame. As we elements, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.